Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Recovery. This week is a very special episode. It's one that we recorded a while ago, and we've been kind of holding back and excited to share with you. As you know, we, well, you may not know, but we participated in Homebrew Christianity's Theology Beer Camp in October, and we were lucky, both Justin and I, to get to interview some of the keynote speakers. And Justin interviewed Dr. Roberto Che Espinoza. And if you don't know their work, Friends, I invite you to check it out. It is incredible. I asked for a bio from my friend, Dr. Roberto, and let me tell you, it does a pretty good job of explaining just sort of how broad the spectrum of the work that they've been engaged in, a scholar activist, a scholar leader, a thought leader, a teacher, a public theologian, an ethicist, a poet of moral reason, and a word artist. And all of that is true as well as just being an incredible human, a non-binary, trans, queer, Latinx, someone who really knows how to sort of get uh, two groups that can't really get together to understand how we can heal through our presence with each other. One of the incredible things about Dr. Roberto is the book that just came out. They wrote a book called Body Becoming, A Path to Our Liberation, and it is just a beautiful book. And so I hope that you enjoy this conversation. And more than that, I hope that you check out the work of Dr. Roberto. My name is Justin Gentry. I'm one half of the Recovery podcast. The other half is recording somewhere else. That's Sarah Heath. Recovery is primarily a podcast that was originally targeted for ministers who were wondering if they were going to leave ministry. How do you do that? If you've ever been in ministry, has anyone been, who, who has here has been or is in ministry? Raise your hand. Uh, if you've ever tried to leave, it is a complex thing. Deciding to stay, deconstructing your faith, questioning your faith while you're a pastor is it's a hard thing to do. Like a congregant or parishioner, like when they're questioning their faith, they come to you. When you question your faith, who do you go to? You go to the people typically that have the power to fire you. And so it becomes complex. So we want to be a podcast that that tells people stories of their leaving and transitioning, people that are staying, people that are shifting in their faith, shifting in their identity, and how that plays out in ministry. And so uh, that's going to be the kind of the focus, at least of the first half of what Dr. Roberto and I are going to be talking about today. But also it's going to open up at the in the middle for questions and things like that for you all. Sound good? Are we good? Excellent. So I honestly, it is a distinct honor to be sitting with you and to be able to introduce you as Dr. Roberto Shea Espinoza today. And what we usually do is we open this podcast up with a question of like, how long were you in? And it has kind of that feeling of like, so sentence, like how long were you in? Or, um, or how long have you been in? And so I would just want to get a sense of your story in, in ministry and also in your work now with activist theology and all the other things you do. Kind of a, an A to B, how did we get here with Dr. Roberto? 
so, I mean, I've been in for a long time. Yeah. And keep trying to leave. And the church continues to somehow invite me back in. Yeah, it's like the Godfather. Like, yeah. They just bring me yeah. back in. <laughs> it's like Hotel California. Yeah. <laughs> I felt, as many people did, a call to ministry mm-hmm. at a young age. But because I didn't have the right genitalia in the Southern Baptist Church, mm-hmm. they said that's not possible. A year later, I had a brain aneurysm and oh, wow. two open craniotomies to correct that. Oh, wow. And they said, this is a sign. We know that you're called to ministry. And I was like, fuck you, no. <laughs> um, and so because there was that antagonism, yeah. and I already knew that I was different yeah. in terms of gender and sexuality, I, I sort of eschewed my, the local church and decided to go study theology as an undergrad. Yeah. And there I was met with lots of challenge because I was the only non-white bodied person Mm -hmm. in the classroom and the only person who was queer and trans. So, and I was at a Baptist university where you don't talk about those things because, you know, I could have gotten kicked out of school. Yeah. And, you know, like I would carry around feminist theology books in, in the late, you know, mid to late nineties. That's, that is a flex. That is, that's, I like that. And, and because they were like my witnesses in the classroom, because I was the only sort of differently bodied person in this white space. And, you know, I was the first person in my family to finish high school, certainly the first person to go on to college, et cetera. Mm -hmm. My mom, who is from Mexico has a sixth grade education. So you know, I was really at a deficit in figuring out how to navigate these systems. And so I would carry around these, a stack of feminist theology books. And my friend Josh, who was a few years ahead of me doing um, his master's, people would come up to him and say, is that person a lesbian? And Josh would say, why, why do you ask? And they said, well, they're always carrying around feminist theology books. And Josh said... Well, I read feminist theology. Does that make me a lesbian? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it would just shut down the conversation because I've, I've actually never identified as gay or lesbian. Yeah. I've always identified as queer. That was before queer was this umbrella term yeah. for LGBT. So fast forward, I finished my theology undergrad. I do some postgraduate work at Hardin-Simmons Logston School of Theology. My, my two white professors send me off to go study with a Latin American feminist theologian, mm-hmm. Dr. Nancy Bedford, at Garrett Seminary, which is on the campus of Northwestern. I haven't really been out of the state of Texas. I spent my summers in Mexico, but leaving Texas was like not a thing. Mm-hmm. So I'm like fresh off the boat, no coat, no winter coat, jeans and a t-shirt, showed up for my first class in this University of Texas t-shirt, you know, like just didn't know how to navigate the space, right? I mean, there's a, there are certain scripts that yeah. you have to follow. I did an academic degree. I didn't do an MDiv because I wanted to teach. Yeah. And, and this was my response to the Southern Baptist church saying, no, you can't do this. Mm. And was, I th- was there a little bit of like, I'm going to stay in this out of 
almost like to spite you a little bit? So, so, so some of that, I mean, I began reading like Calvin and Luther as a high schooler. So I, I was already yeah. just very interested in the intellectual project of mm -hmm. theology. And so, you know, when I got into college and was more immersed in it, I thought, oh yeah, I like this, but I, you know, I sort of, I sort of went very philosophical and, you know, was re reading deconstruction before deconstruction got misused yeah. as this thing that people do with their faith. Yeah. Uh, like, um, the, and the, the, the OG deconstruction. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, and, you know, was just reading a lot of, you know, Whitehead and, you know, just my professors, because I was, because I was so curious and because I could understand the discourse, my professors just kept handing me books you know i yeah. read a bunch on pluralism i read a bunch on like sort of moving beyond monotheism and sort of philosophical arguments for that and and so my professor sent me to study with nancy and and there people said oh you should be ordained and i thought well i'm going into academia why should i be ordained yeah you should be ordained it would give you power well, at that time, I wasn't really attending church, and you know, church for me was like Sunday brunch with a whole bunch of queers, and that sounds like church to me. And and it was and it was really yes. life giving. You yes. know, I we you know, it was a bunch of grad students. We could talk about what we're doing in school yeah. and what we're writing on, and so th these church people said, "No, you you should attend this church. They'll ordain you." And then that would give you more credibility. Mm -hmm. And I thought, seems weird. So I went to this church and I said, so I've been told to come here that, that I should pursue ordination. And they said, well, if you go back in the closet, we'll ordain you. Uh, yeah. And my partner at the time said, I'm not going back in the closet. And uh, that, and it just was an impossibility for me mm -hmm. at that point. And I said, well, I, I can't really do that. And they said, oh, okay, well, if you don't want to go back in the closet, go to this church and you can be out and be ordained. And so I did. And it was in a north suburb of Chicago, Wilmette, very okay. rich, white community. And they had an interim pastor at the time, a white gay man, mm -hmm. cisgendered man. So we started the ordination process and I would preach on occasion. I would you know, help lead worship uh, all while, you know, finishing my seminary degree and, you know, finished my seminary degree, wrote my thesis and then um, started CPE as a discernment process of whether or not I would do the PhD. Yeah. And during this ordination process, this cis white gay male said to me, you have an allergy to yourself. Uh. I had always identified as queer. Mm -hmm. I'm an equal opportunity person. It doesn't matter for me, like attraction in terms of gender. That's not an issue for me. Yeah. It's, it's really about the person. Mm -hmm. Do we have chemistry? Do we have connection? And so this white guy who was a PhD student at Harvard, at um, U of Chicago Divinity School okay. said to me, you have an allergy to yourself. And he shut down the ordination process. Oh, wow. He said, you need more professional development and you have an allergy to yourself. What, what did he, what did, like, can you unpack that a little bit? Like, what did, what did he mean by that? When he so I, I think, that? I think what he meant is in some capacity, 
in lots of capacities, I was unintelligible to him. Okay. And he needed legibility in terms of gender and sexuality. Yeah. And intelligibility. So it was more him saying, you don't make sense to me. Come back when you make sense and then we'll talk. Yeah. But, but you know, it was a projection onto me. Right. And, and I, you know, I tried to talk to people and, you know, I tried to get advocacy and nobody would advocate for me. And, you know, internally I had, you know, sort of always already reconciled my trans identity, Mm -hmm. but it was not safe to come out. And, and, you know, like, in the mid 2000s it's it it was still not super safe and and people expected a sort of linear transition and i had and i had never understood myself to be transitioning from one place to the other mm-hmm. i had always understood myself as a multiplicity becoming yeah but like there was no information about that that non-binary didn't exist uh and so i was really isolated and alone and so kept it to myself mm-hmm. And, you know, I, so I, I said, fuck that. I left the church. No more. Yalasta went and did uh, another three units of CPE. And there I was again, the only non-white bodied person, the only trans person, the only queer person. And every time I contributed something, it would just land in the middle and no one would respond to it. Mm-hmm. And so this was a very lonely process, a very isolating. I'm sure. And there was one guy who stood up for me. He was Mormon. Mm-hmm. And, and he, he would often say, you know, Ra, they have a point. And, but no one would engage. And, you know, I finished th- those four units. I ended up applying for PhD work because I felt like, that that's where I need to be. I need to study. I felt called to the vocation of theologian and left the church. Uh, good riddance. I, I mean, I was on staff in several places prior to that, did a bunch of student ministry, uh, was on the speaking circuit in Texas, you know, and, and at that point I was like, no, I need to invest my time in academia and I need to figure out how do our how do I articulate these things in a way that can do good? Because people who have power are harming people. That yes. guy who said to me I had an allergy to myself harmed me. Yes. And he has no idea. Mm-hmm. And I've never confronted him about it. And he sort of goes on to hold power positions and yeah. whatnot. And I, so I went and did the PhD and uh, started using they, them pronouns. And what year was this? That was, so let's see, I started in the fall of 2009 Okay. and, you know, sort of self-identified as trans, but not interested in, in like being a man, whatever man means. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but was very interested in masculinity yeah. and something adjacent to what we understand as manhood in, in this context. Yeah. And so began working on like masculinity studies, began working on bodies, continued to read a lot of philosophy and, and, and really just sort of abandon anything to do with theology and was doing much more like moral philosophy, philosophical ethics, very conceptual abstract stuff. 
And I met a person who was being ordained and she wanted me to come to her ordination service. And I thought, oh, yeah, you know, I've, I've done this before. <laughs> what not? drag you into the church. Right. <laughs> and one of my favorite hymns is Come Thou Fount. Yeah. It has problematic language in it, but it's, I, I like it. It hits the right notes. Like some it of those hits, old hymns, like, yeah. there's a verse in there that I wish I could remove. Yeah. Yeah. But the parts I could keep, yeah. they just... They hit the right notes. And, yeah. and years I later, I was preaching at a church in Michigan, and they redid that with social justice words. Oh, that's lovely. And so it's a much better hymn yeah. in that version, which I've shared with people. Um, but Jessica uh, invited me to her ordination, and they were singing Come Thou Fount, so I went. An old friend of mine was preaching the service, and they both said, you know, you should be ordained. You're, you're already doing this work. Yeah. You should be ordained. And I thought, we already tried that, and look how it turned out. Yeah. You know, and who's going to ordain a trans, an openly <clears throat> trans, like, far left, yeah. queer person, Latinx, you yeah. know, who's going to do that? And so they were like, oh, right, right. You know, it's like why people don't think about this. <laughs> oh, we forgot. Like, why like, people wow. don't think about these yeah. standpoints that marginalized people embody yeah. and occupy. And they were like, yeah, we don't know what community that would be. So, and also like not interested. Yeah. Not interested in the institutional church. Not interested in ordination. And... And years later, I was, uh, in 2017, got asked to be at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. Okay. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go. And they're asking me to be a clergy presence. Mm -hmm. And remember, I wasn't ordained. Yeah. I love how you don't have an interest in it. And, but people keep asking you. Right. Like, and then asking like, me to like play these clergy roles. Yeah. So I had to go out and buy me a clergy shirt <laughs> because they weren't having it any other way. Yeah. They're like, no, we want you to be here representing clergy. You can I get those online for really cheap. Yeah. Like <laughs> anyone can be clergy. I didn't have a stole. I didn't have anything. <laughs> yeah. So I had a friend make me a stole. Nice. And the kind of stole that I wanted, it was, it's bright red. It's got my name embroidered on the back. And it's got a big fist on the front of it. And it says Black Lives Matter. I like it. You can't miss me. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I'll go. I'll, I'll perform this identity. Yeah. Afterwards, my friend Jessica, remember Jessica, who I went to her ordination? Mm -hmm. Well, she had now started a church, kind of a, a community, a ritual community, and she wanted to ordain me. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, why? But, you know, some of it made sense because I was spending so much time in the pulpit mm -hmm. and like I'm doing this thing. I mean, I'm, I'm like a pastor to people online who have no place. And, oh, so, OK, maybe this does make sense for me to do because then I can be connected to a body that would hold me accountable. So I said, OK, yeah, maybe I should do this. So I did it, and we had a very simple service of just claiming what I had already been doing. Yeah. I mean, I'm Baptist, so for me, baptism is my ordination. Yeah. So I don't need any sort of extra thing. 
but for the sake of pointing to a time and space, yeah, I was ordained, and and so like I function as clergy when I need to. I only use the clergy title when I'm signing documents, yeah, and. But I'm like a pastor to a bunch of people, a bunch of people who like would never consider stepping in church. Yeah. And I think that is sacred. Yeah. There's something, there's something important to that role. Yeah. So still not invested in the institutional church, much yeah. prefer community and like Sunday brunch mm-hmm. and yet find myself being this public pastor and this public theologian and this public intellectual. Uh, all the while being on faculty at Duke Divinity School, which is like the belly of the beast. <laughs> so that's how long I've been in. Yeah. I keep trying to leave, but <laughs> they won't let me. Yeah. And here I am. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for, for being here and sharing that story. Like I, it, it, it strikes a lot, a lot of similar notes in that a lot of people's stories in ministry are like, I want in, I want out. I don't know, but, but, the, you keep being drawn back into this place, even though you don't want to be here. By people, yeah. not by tradition, yes. not by the institution. Yes. And I think I think that people authority is very important when it comes to church spaces. I think we give institutions, we give the book of discipline, mm-hmm. we give the thing that somebody said 200 years ago, maybe a little bit too much weight. Right. And giving that no, like the people are asking for Dr. Roberto to be here right. in this space. Right. And that makes it holy and good and mm-hmm. what is needed mm-hmm. in this moment. And I think... There's a lot of pastors that are leaving ministry because the institution is kicking them out, even though their people are saying, no, we actually still want you here. And so I, I love that you are able to model that being a pastor in some ways outside of an institution, mm-hmm. but still having that institutional authority. I mean, I get messages you. all the time yeah. saying, are, are, are you a pastor somewhere? Like, do yeah. you convene people? And I'm like, no. Do you convene people? I'm, I love not, that. I'm not trying to do that. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh, like, should I like, is that like, is this question actually an invitation yes. to make space for people? Yes. Because we are meaning making people, right? Mm. That's, that's, that's what we are. Yep. We are story, you know, our stories are embedded in us, but I'm not trying to have a church. Yeah. Like, can we call it something else? Call it whatever you call it brunch. Yeah. Like I, we, we, I, Rev Covery, we have a Discord community, and a lot of a lot of people they leave ministry, and that kind of first Sunday is like, what the, what the fuck do I do? Yeah. Like, um, so we have a brunch like Discord, and where people take pictures of their brunch. Like, this is the first brunch I've had in years because, I, you know, I've always been a part of this. So I, th- I think brunch is a sacred and wonderful thing, and yeah. we should do more of it. And so, if you get nothing out of this, have more brunch yeah. with with people that are different than you. I yeah. think that. Because, again, institutions sometimes do not allow for difference in a way that brunch does. So if the sacred theology of brunch may be my memoir. Uh, yeah. But I also think the, the posture is interesting, too, because so many institutions are asked that question, why? Why would we do this? Why would we ordain this person? But I feel like the biblical tradition should be more why not, mm-hmm. you know, with with timothy or titus or whoever he was in the ethiopian eunuch i can't remember i'm a little bit inebriated you know philip and and the ethiopian eunuch like like 
the question is like, can I be baptized? And the response is, well, why not? Right. Like, why not? This new thing that is happening, why not? And so I, I appreciate in a lot of ways you embody that energy of why not? Mm -hmm. Like, why can't I be here? Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people that look like me scratching their heads and, and getting really confused. And that, that to me is wrong because we should embody that energy of why can't we do this? Yeah. There, there is nothing now in this moment and nothing that amongst the body of people that is being harmed. We're reducing harm and, and posturing ourselves mm -hmm. in this way. I find, I, I, let me also say, I went to college with a person by the name of Matt Chandler. Oh, wow. Okay. And um, I don't know if that name means anything to people. And so I saw very up close ego yeah. and toxic maleness yeah. and platform culture. Mm -hmm. And when Matt was diagnosed with uh, brain cancer, I reached out to him and we corresponded for a bit and and I was in my PhD program and he wanted to read my dissertation. And I thought, why? Like you're you're not invested in this. In fact, you're adamantly opposed to yeah. what I'm working on. I never did let him read it. But you know, we corresponded for a while during my program, and I just continued to watch him become much more siloed in the extreme right theology and heard stories about harm, mm. heard stories about abuse. And, you know, here is someone who, like I knew really well in college and I'm like, I do not want to be like that. And so I have forever sort of resisted platform culture yeah. and even now try to turn my platform into community, into relationships and and I don't see a lot of people doing that. I see a lot of people hungry for platforms. I see a lot of people who want to take up a lot of space, maybe who shouldn't have a microphone. And I see a lot of harm. Yeah. And no one is no one is critically engaging platform culture in a way that is productive. I, I know that myself and Joe Lumen criticize it. Yes. But I, I see a lot of folks like leaving ministry, but wanting to maintain a platform and the, the pastor to life coach pipeline is, yeah. it's real. And, and no embodied awareness about relationship. Mm -hmm. And that, that really concerns me. And so, you know, like as I watch my Twitter feed and Instagram feed, as I watch the followers continue and you know Derek Webb and I just announced a tour that we're going to do around storytelling and music and and I see those follows and I get very nervous because what I'm fundamentally interested in is connection and togetherness mm -hmm. and social media does not create conditions for that and and people all the time are like why don't you add content like produce more content whatnot I'm like, I'm a, I'm a scholar. I'm a theologian. I'm not a content yeah. creator. When are you going to create a sales funnel? Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I, and I just, I, I'm like, can we not just consume this information? Can we actually live out principles that matter to us? Mm -hmm. But like, no one is interested in that. Yeah. Because capitalism. Right. Uh, I, right. I think. And because of whiteness. And because of whiteness. Yeah. I, it's interesting because you talk about political theology and activist theology. 
And I think that, I think we need more of that. But I think there's also a, a lack of awareness of these systems, particularly again, people like me were like, this is just, this is what we live in. Mm -hmm. Like, this is the way the world works. Mm -hmm. um, without asking that question, like, humans create the world that we live in. Right. And it doesn't have to work this way. No mm -hmm. one says it has to work this way. Mm -hmm. You know, and pastors and Paul, I'll tell a quick story and then I want to lead into maybe how politics can influence theology and theology influencing politics a little bit. So I was at a church in 2014, I believe it was, when uh, Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson. And that Sunday, not to not be political, the prayer that day was for the police officers that they would be safe during the race riots. Like, lots of podcast air quotes for those of you that are listening. Like, and that was the non-political way of addressing the crisis. I would say that's a very political way of I, oh, addressing the crisis. Oh, like, I agree. Like, again, giant podcast air quotes. And so, again, there is a water that we swim in, especially as ministers, and there is a pressure to not be political, but the pressure to not be political makes us very conservatively political in a lot of churches. And I think there are many ministers I know, and I've talked to them, that have left because they're like, hey, actually, we probably should talk about racism. But they're like, no, that's political. Or, hey, we should talk about LGBTQIA inclusion. Like, no, that's political. Which I'm like, y'all are the ones that politicized these bodies. Like, you're the ones that did it. Now we have to talk about it. But how would you maybe, what would you maybe to say to pastors that are like, I, I feel this need, this calling, this to address my congregation in this way that they're going to see as political. How, how do we begin that conversation uh, without just the second they open their mouth, they get kicked out? Well, I, uh, maybe that's okay. That burn it all down is an option here, but I just want to ask you the question, like, what is the way to approach that? Well, I, I would say, who are we trying to be faithful to? Mm -hmm. An institution that is built on the labor, the extractive labor of darker skinned bodies or what? And how do we be faithful in the small things? Sometimes being faithful in the small things is saying the thing that no one else is willing to say. Mm -hmm. I, I was speaking, I keynoted an event, a black Pentecostal event in July, uh, Bishop Yvette Flunder's group. She is the Bishop of the fellowship of, of affirming ministries. And there I said, we are in Arizona. We are on land that is historically Atzlan, mm -hmm. historically Mexico. And let's recall that it was Obama who deported more people than any other president. Are you saying something bad about the, the Saint Obama? Right. Yeah. And yeah. and like no one is willing to say that. No and one and is. I'm no. in a yep. room of like ninety percent black folk. Yeah. And I kept going. And I yeah. said Keep going. And if we care about our LGBTQIA siblings, mm -hmm. then we need to do something about Clarence Thomas. Mm -hmm. He's going to undermine his own marriage. Yes. Because if we think Roe v. Wade is the end of things, it's not. Mm -hmm. It's going to go to Oberfell. Yes. And then it's going to go to Loving versus Virginia and Brown versus Board of Education. Mm -hmm. They're undoing it all. And Bishop Yvette Flunder said... You see, we have a prophet. I don't consider myself a prophet. I'm quoting her. See, we have a prophet who is willing to say what no one else is willing to say. Yep. You know that you're all thinking this. Yep. And I think we need, I'm risk adverse, number mm. one. 
so I don't gamble, you know, I don't <laughs> get drunk. Um, but I do risk in telling the truth. Yes. Okay. And I think we need to become a little bit riskier when it comes to truth telling. Yes. And so, you know, for the pastor who feels this nudge or this urge to not go with the party line, mm. can you imagine being faithful in telling the truth? I mean, the old adage is true. The truth will set us free. Yeah. What truth and whose truth, though? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. I, I, think, I think politics is essentially how we organize land, how we organize people, and how we organize power. And to me, I don't see how that cannot be theological in, in the way that it works. Like your theology, the, what you believe about God, what you believe about people is going to impact that. So I think... I think an encouragement to pastors is to understanding you are doing politics while you are doing theology. Right. They're not, you know, systematic theologians like to think that they're above the fray. But like a theology must always trickle down to how we arrange bodies, how we arrange power, how we arrange the space that we are in. Right. And I think asking ourselves who is not included here right. is, a, is a theological and a political question. Well, the Greek term polis, from which we get politica, mm -hmm. is organizing bodies. Yeah. And so if we are not thinking about the systems that organize bodies, mm -hmm. look at how we organize bodies into a binary. Look at yes. how we organize bodies into a racial category. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have to check two boxes, white and then of Hispanic heritage. Mm -hmm. I, you know, but, but so, so Latino people, you know, get lumped into this white category, mm -hmm. which, which I think screws the algorithm. But, yeah. but that's, that's an example of like how we organize bodies. Yeah. Like the questions we ask on those forms is political and right. it is, and it has roots in a lot of right. bad theology right. as well. Right. So yeah, I think this is an ongoing conversation that I think, and the pastors have to ask themselves, what am, am I willing to risk my job? Am I willing to risk my pension? Am I willing to risk for these people that are, I'm called to serve? I mean, I will say that two things. So many pastors serve the all-American all dollar, mm -hmm. so much so that they are deeply compromised. Yes. And just having a platform doesn't mean your fridge is full or your rent is paid. Yes. So I'm saying a lot of things out there that is undermining like normative scripts. But that doesn't mean that I always have a living wage or, mm. you know, always am able to like buy my groceries or pay my rent. Mm -hmm. So, I, but I am willing to speak the truth and use words whenever necessary mm -hmm. because it matters because my people, not just Latino people, but queer people and trans people, we are being disposed of mm -hmm. by the very politics that these institutional churches uphold. I want to open it up to questions from the audience. Uh, if you have any questions, if you have questions related to like rev recovery type stuff or what we just talked about, great. If you have a question that's like completely not related to that at all and you just want to ask, uh, that's fine too. Like we're, there's not like a, an agenda here for as far as your questions go. So if you have any questions, speak loudly and I will interpret your question for the audio and then maybe badly, maybe well, you can grade me and then uh, we'll have uh, Dr. Roberto answer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll just kind of repeat it a little bit. The, the question was, you know, we, we have this debate between, you know, kind of the knowledge that we have 
versus the things that we do, the practical and the, the, the accumulation of knowledge. And I think centering your work on like, hey, this is the pragmatic thing that we do today, but how do we get people to doing that? You know, is, is it just, you know, again, 20 years of knowledge and then finally, oh, aha, I get it. Or is it too late and we need to just drag folks kicking and screaming into the new paradigm? So there are three sites of supremacy that I talk about. Medicine, religion, and education. And each of those sites demand a passive epistemology, meaning when you go to the doctor, you describe what's going on, and then you receive the knowledge. And you can either take the medicine or not. In education, you go through school because it's compulsory, and you sit at a desk, and you receive, and you accumulate knowledge, and then, you know, like, if you are a good citizen, you'll go to college, you'll get some sort of technical degree, and you'll become a good citizen by getting a job. For religion, same thing. You go into a building, you sit in a pew, you receive a message, and you internalize with no expectation to live it out. These are all three folds of supremacy culture. My question to that in both of my books, so my first book is really saying we need to free theology from academia, from the ivory tower, and put it into the hands of people, meaning we need to encourage common people to have agency to think for themselves and to learn how to be in community and create knowledge production in community and not just passively receive and do nothing with it. In, in my second book, I talk about how embodiment is a vision for democracy, that we can literally save our democracy by learning to have a relationship with our bodies because when I have a better relationship with my body, I am better in relationship with you. And that affects our praxis. So, I'm not saying do away with education. I'm saying we need to do it better. We, we need to do it in a non-supremacist way. I, I was talking to Nathan about this. I still believe, and it's how I run my classes at Duke, I still believe that things like theology and philosophy can, it, for, back of letter, for, for lack of better wording, shapes our souls. Mm-hmm. And we've gotten far away from that. And so the way I lead my classes at Duke is conversation. And, and I say, you have to read and think for yourself because I'm just here to facilitate a conversation. And, and yet students who, whatever age, they go to seminary, they go to college and they expect to receive some sort of divine wisdom so that they can just like meditate on it. But we have to remember that theology is both contemplation and action for the sake of what? Justice. Thank you. Any other questions? Yes. Yeah. Uh, the question was, how are we, you know, when we look at masculinity, a lot of times we associate with toxic masculinity. And so when we see God, uh, we should be seeing God as feminine, but also how do we see God in a healthy masculine way? So... I'm very excited to meet you because one of my next projects is on ethical masculinities. And, um, and so I'm trying to figure out how to do a class on ethical masculinities because 
so much of my uh, uh, resistance to like going on testosterone was I was not interested in becoming a man, whatever man means. I'm interested in masculinity. And so, you know, now I call myself a non-binary trans guy. You know, the father language for God has never bothered me, but I understand why it bothers people. The mother language has never appealed to me, but I understand why it's important to people. And so, you know, my curiosity is similar to yours. Like, how do we create conditions for ethical masculinities to emerge? Because there's a lot of trans guys out there who have not addressed the internalized misogyny and live out this toxic patriarchy that is harming people. And they learn it from religion, from education, and from medicine, because each of those sites are deeply misogynistic and, and highly patriarchal. So I'm working on something uh, which I, I mean, I can talk a little bit about, like I'm working on some stuff around tenderness. I'm working on some stuff around generativity, that masculinity should be both tender and generative and rooted, uh, a sense of rootedness in your body. I mean, there's a lot of trans folks who are disconnected from their body for lots of reasons. Then there's a lot of assist people who are disconnected from their bodies. So yeah, one of my, one of my next projects is on ethical masculinities and Tripp and I are thinking about doing like um, some men's work together, kind of like a men's retreat on, cause like here we are not talking about race or the fact that the majority of people here are white bodied people. Like where's the race analysis? Where's the class analysis? Because race and class are connected. Where's the gender, sex, and sexuality analysis? What about the analysis around ability? Like uh -huh. the, the intersectional piece is not here. So how do we recover that? And how do we, how do we steward the logic of liberation even in our masculinities? So it's forthcoming. Anything else? We still have time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the question was in... If someone who's out of church for a while coming back in because you want to contribute in some way and getting involved in the institution of church, how do you get involved in that institution in a way that is that is helpful and beneficial that without getting caught up in it and all of a sudden like, hey, I'm back defending an institution again, uh, but also isn't working. Sometimes you can work against the institution within it and then you're frustrated, they're frustrated, everyone's frustrated. So how? And then, yeah. And then you're kind of back in. Do I stay or go? So how, how do you wrestle on that tension? So, yes, I may teach at Duke, which is an elite R1 school. Uh, I am very much a fugitive who is in exile because my project is unintelligible to the academy. And I am not invested in systems that are death bringing, which I would say the institutional churches and all these other sites of supremacy. I think the only way forward is abolition. And by that, I mean life-affirming systems. I don't think electoral politics is a life-affirming system. Neither Democrat nor Republican is a party that is stewarding liberation. Establishment politics is not going to get us anywhere. Establishment church politics is not going to get us anywhere. So this may not be the answer that you want, but if you are invested in systems that are creating conditions for liberation, great. But if they are systems that are stewarding the same bullshit and maintaining the status quo, 
they may be doing more harm than good. They may make people feel good, but charity is not going to save us. And charity is not liberation. Any other questions? I think you've shut down a room of <laughs> homebrew Christianity folks. So I, I think I'll, I do want to ask one last question for, for the pastor that maybe is listening to this. Or, or, you know, we have a lot of super volunteers that listen to our podcast, too, that are like, you know, they've, they probably should be paid for their work, but they aren't, unfortunately. So that person that is feeling that nudge or is starting to look downstream and realizing my church is not producing res like results that are good, or my church is not, for to use a biblical metaphor, I mean, we are encouraged in scripture to measure the fruit of a teaching, to test the spirits. And they're beginning to test the spirits of the institution that they've become involved in. And they're like, it is a bit rotten. What is maybe something a bit rotten being? I just saw like a couple people raise their eyebrows, like a bit, Justin, that's putting it mildly. You find yourself, if you find yourself in that and you begin to start, I hate to use the term waking up, but it, it, you begin to become more aware of the harm that is being done around you. What are some practical steps to begin extracting yourself or begin making some change there? I mean, I think that what you just said is spot on. Mm -hmm. We can tell a lot by what fruit is being produced. Yeah. I don't know that we're paying attention, though. True. To what fruit is being produced. Many of us are so tethered to these systems that we can't see straight. Mm -hmm. And we have to remember good is a contested term. What is good for me is not yeah. necessarily what's good for you. Mm -hmm. And so we need to have an analysis around what is good fruit and for whom mm -hmm. and to what end. And, you know, I, in many respects, think we need to be organizing around abolitionist frameworks. I think that, you know, Dorothy Soleil in the 60s began holding Evensong where they had conversations about pressing social concerns and then acted on that. Mm -hmm. And that was their form of worship. And that is good theology. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that we need to develop an analysis. And if you're if you don't know how to do that, we do that on our podcast every week, mm -hmm. the Activist Theology Podcast. Yeah. So you could check out some of those episodes. So develop an analysis, have a critical reflection about where you are, mm. and then figure out what you will do in response to that knowledge, to that reflection, and to that analysis. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Uh, if you have any questions that you were like, I don't want to ask this publicly, I want to ask this privately, you're going to stick around, right? Yeah. Uh, so thank you very much. Let's go ahead and just uh, give Dr. Roberto a round of applause. So thank thank you. you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you are enjoying the conversations you hear on RevCovery, you can continue the conversation with us and many more incredible people in the RevCovery room on Discord. To access our Discord, please join our Patreon to become part of the RevCovery room community. You can join for as little as $4 a month, and this helps us produce the show, as well as gives you access to the community resources. Check it out at www.patreon.com RevCovery. We know that not everyone is able to financially support the show, but there are lots of ways to support us, including giving us a five-star review wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to like and subscribe across all social media. 
Recovery Room is our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook handle, so you can find us there to keep the conversation going. Now on to some final thoughts and this week's poem. Friends, thanks again for sticking around for another episode of Recovery, and I hope that you enjoyed the conversation. I wanted to actually quote, I've never done this before, quote the guests themselves. <laughs> this is from Dr. Roberto's book, Body Becoming, and it is this simple statement. Oppression is unprocessed trauma on a collective scale. I found that to be such a profound quote. And then I got an email from Dr. Roberto, and that's part of their signature. And so I thought it would be a fitting way for us to end this week's recovery. Thanks again for joining us.